You're listening to Season 3 of Future Ecologies. Hello, and welcome to Part 2 of Goat Walker. In the last episode, we met Jim Corbett, a rancher, philosopher, and desert survivalist. If you haven't already heard it, I strongly suggest you give it a listen, because understanding a bit about Jim will go a long way towards understanding the radical social movement he helped to spark. The story of that movement is the subject of today's episode. My co-host, Adam, will take it from here. So, what comes to mind when you hear the word sanctuary? For me, up until just the past few years, the word would have conjured images of this scene, of Quasimodo rescuing Esmeralda in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Disney version, of course. Sanctuary has almost a medieval feeling, as if it's a historical artifact of a bygone time. But by around 2016, the word sanctuary had assumed an entirely new meaning, at least in the United States. At the time, the status of so-called sanctuary cities was getting a lot of press, driven by a former reality TV show star turned politician. We will end the sanctuary cities that have resulted in so many needless deaths. If this somehow flew under your radar, sanctuary cities are basically jurisdictions that pledge to offer municipal services and conduct law enforcement without cooperating with immigration enforcement. Meaning, theoretically, that if you are living in a sanctuary jurisdiction in the United States without legal status, you could still access housing or legal services and interact with law enforcement without fear of deportation. By 2018, over 500 U.S. jurisdictions had adopted some kind of sanctuary policy. The Trump administration made several attempts to fulfill a campaign promise to withhold federal funding from these self-identified sanctuary cities. But like most things the Trump administration tried to do, Their attempts to cut this federal funding got bogged down in the courts and eventually blocked, in whole or in part, depending on the provision. Underneath all of this noise, you might be wondering how this idea of sanctuary made the jump from the abbeys of medieval Europe to the supercharged rhetoric of U.S. immigration policy. Sanctuary for these criminal, illegal aliens. Thankfully, for nearly every question like this nowadays, Someone has produced a podcast to answer it. And in 2017, producer Delaney Hall of the podcast 99% Invisible released a two-part series profiling something called The Sanctuary Movement, an organized network of churches and civil society groups that formed in the 1980s to help refugees from Central America evade U.S. immigration authorities. The series focused specifically on the church-state issues this movement raised, and on the eventual trial of its leadership, chief among whom were John Fife and Jim Corbett. The 99% Invisible series puts the spotlight on John, which makes sense. He remains a powerful voice in defense of migrant rights, and of the two men, he's the one who's still able to sit for an interview. But for me, 
This has the unintentional effect of downplaying Jim's foundational role in the movement. In fact, when Jim suddenly started relating his experiences as part of the sanctuary movement about halfway through Goat Walking, his first book, I actually had to go back and listen to the 99% Invisible story to see if he was in there at all. Because if he was, it hadn't really left an impression. It turns out they had included him, but I could be forgiven for forgetting. Other than some details surrounding the decision to declare sanctuary and the trial, this is how producer Delaney Hall summed Jim up at the time. Jim Corbett died in 2001, but back in the 80s, he lived on the edge of Tucson. He raised goats, and he knew a lot about philosophy. He was also a Quaker. Now, don't get me wrong. She definitely had Jim pegged. He did raise goats, and was a Quaker, and he knew a lot about philosophy. The series is excellent. I highly recommend listening to it. And I think she made the right call in not getting too deep into the weeds with Jim. But on this podcast, getting into the weeds is what we're all about. And in my estimation, Jim's philosophy and his goat walking aren't incidental to the story of the sanctuary movement. They're essential, and they prefigure everything that follows. All of his life, Jim had been tilting at windmills, seeking opportunities to live out his philosophy of errantry and nonviolence in practice. And in the early 1980s, Jim finally picked a windmill that turned out to be a lightning rod. All it took was a chance encounter. From Future Ecologies, this is Goatwalker, Part 2, Sanctuary. The origin story of the sanctuary movement in the United States might begin with a small goat milking cooperative that Jim Corbett had brought together in the early 1980s. Jim and his wife Pat were living in Tucson, Arizona, and Ann Russell, the Quaker student who went on a goat walk with Jim in the 1970s, happened to be attending the University of Arizona at the time. I started my master's degree, and they were living close by, and so I started to go over because I missed the goats and I missed Jim, and I would go over and milk in the morning, and he would make oatmeal, and the three of us would have breakfast. Anne was working in the Department of Plant Pathology when she met Tom Oram. And it didn't take long for her to introduce Tom to Jim and the goats. And so he started coming over and the group started getting bigger and then it was a goat co-op. The members of the goat co-op jokingly referred to themselves as Los Cabreros Andantes. Jim read Don Quixote and he saw himself as Don Quixote. And in Spanish, a, a knight errant, which was what Don Quixote was, in Spanish, that's caballero andante. So we were cabreros andantes, which, cabrero being goat herd and caballero being gentleman. <laughs> These self-proclaimed goat herders errant would meet regularly to schedule milking slots. And the chance encounter I've alluded to occurred on the evening of May 4, 1981, at one of those meetings. Tom Oram was there, and he remembers the night well. We were having a goat group meeting that Los Cabreros on that. We were passing the uh, sign-up sheet around, and this guy who was connected with our Baja project. A Quaker named James Dudley. He was driving a van up from Sonora and picked up a Salvadoran guy, and uh, 
came into the GOAT group meeting and described what had happened. Dudley had been driving from the border town of Nogales, north to Tucson, and had picked up a hitchhiker from the small Central American country of El Salvador. Almost immediately, they reached a border checkpoint, and border patrol agents seized the Salvadoran, who had no papers. Working detail, it's a high, high area for us. That's why we're pulling almost everybody over. And that was that. Dudley kept driving, stopped by the meeting, and told the story to the group. At the time, it seemed like it could have been an isolated incident. But Jim took it seriously. Well, it was, like, serious, but it didn't get real serious until Jim woke up the next morning and decided to go down and find the guy down in Nogales. Jim was determined to speak with the Salvadoran, who was being held in custody by the INS, or the Immigration and Naturalization Service. This was before it was subsumed within the Department of Homeland Security, post 9-11. To figure out where the man was, Jim started making cold calls, and he quickly realized that nobody in the INS or Border Patrol was going to give him any information. He was able to reach a local aid organization, and he was given a form called a G-28 that the Salvadoran could fill out in order to seek legal assistance. But first, he'd actually have to find the man. Then, an idea came to him. By coincidence, Jim shared both first and last names with a former mayor of the city of Tucson. And so, he called the INS back, and with his best, most commanding voice, he declared himself to be Jim Corbett, and demanded information on the location of the Salvadoran. And he got it. They'd taken the man to the Santa Cruz County Jail in Nogales on the border to await deportation. Jim went down there that very afternoon. When he arrived at the jail and requested to see the Salvadoran, they set him up with another prisoner who wasn't the man in question. And once he realized this, they sat him in the waiting room and they made him wait. Finally, when Jim became frustrated and demanded at last to see the man he'd come to see, the guard said that he was gone. While they'd kept Jim waiting, they'd taken the Salvadoran and shipped him off to El Centro Prison in California. And that just really hooked Jim. They hadn't tricked him and just let him talk to the guy, who knows, but being tricked was really set the tone for, oh my gosh, this is not right. That's how it started with him, was he met a guy who was taken away and he had to find out what happened to him. So it was like one person he met a person and then had to look for him. And then that's the thing about Jim, that everything has a logical next step. And you follow it, even though it may not be comfortable. And it may take you places that people tell you you can't go. At this point, I think it's important to note that in the 1970s, the border just wasn't as militarized as it is today. Movement was much more fluid between Mexico and the United States, and a certain amount of permeability was seen as socially and economically advantageous for border communities. But in 1980, two things happened that set the stage for Jim's chance encounter. The first was the outbreak of civil war across Central America. In 1979, the Sandinistas, a revolutionary leftist socialist party, overthrew the government of Nicaragua. 
despite everything the government forces have thrown at them, their morale is high. And when the guns stop firing for a moment, their chant is of victory. Military leaders in El Salvador, fearing similar movements in their own country, instigated a coup d'etat a couple of months later. This kind of butchery, which is generally the activity of those on the right wing in this country, is the sort of thing which can be found on any roadside throughout El Salvador at this time. Meanwhile, a civil war that had been ongoing since the 1960s in Guatemala was flaring up, and the military government in Honduras was waging its own dirty war against leftist groups. The Reagan administration in the United States openly supported these right-wing military governments, viewing them as friendly to U.S. foreign policy interests and as a bulwark against so-called communism in the region. Below in the yard of the police station, heavily armed police return from making their rounds. There are countless instances of deaths and disappearances in which they've been found to have played a role. Yet they're armed with NATO weaponry, which the United States is continuing to supply. We now know that the CIA was covertly funding and arming death squads and other right-wing paramilitary groups throughout Central America, the most infamous of which were Battalion 316 in Honduras and the Contras in Nicaragua, the namesake of the eventual Iran-Contra scandal. This history is complex and multifaceted, but the end result was the violent displacement of millions of Central Americans in the 1980s due to civil war, U.S.-backed death squads, and government campaigns of terror aimed at political dissidents and indigenous peoples. And so, in 1981, refugees from Central America started arriving in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, seeking asylum and foreshadowing the tens and hundreds of thousands to come. The second thing that happened was the passage in 1980 of the Refugee Act in the United States. This law, shepherded by outgoing President Jimmy Carter, brought U.S. immigration law into alignment with international human rights standards, more than doubling the number of refugees that the United States would admit each year, and establishing a well-founded fear of persecution as the standard by which to judge asylum applicants. This legislation expanded eligibility for many refugees and asylum seekers, but unfortunately was not immune from the politics of the day. Under the newly elected Reagan administration, refugees from countries that the U.S. considered adversaries, such as Cuba and Iran, were accepted and naturalized in large numbers thanks to the Refugee Act. On the other hand, the Reagan administration's overt support for the right-wing governments of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras meant that it refused to acknowledge the atrocities committed by those governments against their own citizens. By extension, Throughout the 1980s, nearly all asylum seekers from Central America were considered by the Reagan-era INS to be quote-unquote economic migrants, regardless of their well-founded fears of persecution. In 1981, a refugee from Cuba would find the door wide open under Reagan's INS, but the Salvadoran that Jim was trying to locate didn't have a chance in hell. Jim would drive all the way to El Centro Prison in California to try to help this Salvadoran refugee, to no avail. That's a story in and of itself. But while Jim is out there, I'm going to take a moment to give John Fife, 
the pastor I spoke to in the last episode, a proper introduction. Because if Jim was the spark that ignited the sanctuary movement, John would provide the hearth that sustained it. Uh, My name's John Fife. I grew up in the mountains of southwestern Pennsylvania, near West Virginia. And small town, rural farm life was my heritage. (laughs) John wanted to be a pastor, so he enrolled in seminary. And when he started looking for internships, he got a call from a man from Tucson, Arizona. And he says, we have an internship out here and got your name and wondered if you'd be interested. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about that. And he did the job description and a little bit about the desert and the border. And and he said, uh, do you have any questions? And I said, yeah, I got two. What's an Indian and what's a reservation? <laughs> and he went, oh. <laughs> and I said, well, you need to know. I'm from western Pennsylvania. I don't know anything about the Southwest. I've never been in the Southwest. I don't know anything about Native Americans. And there's a kind of long silence, and he says, well— Church has done a lot of damage to Native Americans over the years. You probably can't do too much more in three months. Why don't you come out? And so I said, I'd love to, if uh, if we understand each other. John left the mountains of southwestern Pennsylvania for the borderlands of southwestern Arizona and never looked back. The Sonoran Desert was a wonder. And the border and the multicultural context of Native Americans and Latinos and African Americans and gringos all in here in the border region, uh, all of the advantages of that kind of multicultural context and multi-ecological context from the tops of the mountains to the Sonoran Desert. And so I, I just couldn't believe there's a place like this. And my wife and I moved out here after I finished graduate school and stayed <laughs> since 1969. So, yeah, I love it. <laughs> Before long, John would become the pastor for Southside Presbyterian Church in Tucson. This church is located in the oldest and poorest barrio in Tucson. And It had a history of beginning as a Native American congregation in the Native American village outside the south of the city of Tucson because Native Americans weren't allowed to live in the city of Tucson. And then as the city grew around here and it became a Mexican-American and Native American barrio, the uh, congregation became multicultural and bilingual, or trilingual. By the time that John arrived, a once thriving congregation was now struggling to sustain itself and was at threat of being closed by the Presbyteriate. Under John's leadership, though, the church grew strong again, supported by this multi-ethnic, multilingual community. And then came 1980. In March of 1980, the Archbishop Oscar Romero was assassinated in El Salvador by a U.S.-backed death squad for speaking out against military violence. His death was the most high-profile in a series of attacks against Christian priests and nuns across Central America. 
And the event galvanized John Fife and his congregation at Southside. And so we started weekly prayer vigils in front of the federal building. And guess who showed up? Jim Corbett at some point uh, at those weekly prayer vigils saying, I just had an experience with a refugee young man from El Salvador that I tried to help and was unable to because the Border Patrol moved him to a detention center in California, and I wasn't able to prevent his deportation like I'd hoped to. So Jim was essential right from that point on. He actually talked to the head of the immigration service here in Tucson and reached an agreement with him that if we would take in voluntarily Salvadoran and Guatemalan refugees who wanted to apply for political asylum, he would not detain them. He'd release them to our custody. At first, Jim worked with a small, women-led organization called Manso Area Council in Tucson to try to render aid to refugees through legal channels. But because of his experiences with how law enforcement treated migrants, Jim was cautious. So I was apprehensive because I didn't trust him. I, you know, we'd, I'd been to El Centro yeah. already and, and knew how they yeah. operated. But uh, it seemed to us the best option for most of the refugees to file for asylum as long as they were reasonably sure of, of getting uh, two or three years in terms of appeals. Um, so it was more the time, buying time than the idea that they would get it. Yeah, we, we knew they wouldn't get okay. it. That had already been established, that the Reagan administration was not going to give Salvadorans asylum. But the uh, thing was that this would allow people to, to be out in the open, move around at will, and uh, not risk being simply grabbed and deported at any moment. Mm-hmm. At least not risk it in the same way others would. Jim negotiated an arrangement with an officer at the local immigration service. He would bring in refugees and the proper paperwork, and they would begin processing the asylum claim and let the refugees go on conditional status. You sit down and wait your turn, and eventually they call you up, and you present the person in the I-589, and they look through it and give you a little receipt. And then, one day, when Jim brought in several men seeking refugee status, this arrangement seemed to fall apart. After making Jim wait longer than usual, that same immigration officer came out. And he said, we're going to go downstairs to the to investigations. And Did he and, tell you right there that he was going to arrest him? Or what did he uh, say? He, he said, we're going to make an inquiry. Uh, at any rate, it was clear that things were going sour. They took the men that Jim had brought with him into custody. All parties agree upon that point. The reasons for this are disputed, though. According to the INS, it was because the men had criminal records. However, Jim recalls the decision being wholly unjustified. At no point did he give that as a, as a reason for having done this. In Jim's mind, the U.S. government had already declared war on Central American refugees. But this, this was the moment when it had also cut off any legal pathway for U.S. citizens to try to help them. It made it fairly clear that uh, this was a position that we could expect in the future as well for people we brought in. And Jim came to me at that point and said, John, 
I don't think we have any choice under the circumstances except to start smuggling refugees safely across the border so they're not caught by border patrol or immigration authorities. And I basically said, really? How do you figure that, Jim? And his rationale was compelling. He said, look at two moments in history. He said, the first is the abolition movement. Uh, when some people of faith helped runaway slaves cross state lines safely without being captured and then formed an underground railroad to move them to safer and safer places so they wouldn't be captured under the Fugitive Slave Act and returned to slavery. And he said, as we read history, those folks got it right. <laughs> they were faithful. And then he pointed to almost the complete failure of the church in Europe in the 1930s and 1940s to protect Jewish refugees who were fleeing the Holocaust, crossing national borders without documents, being captured as illegal aliens, uh, and returned to the tender mercies of, of the Holocaust. And he said to me, that's one of the most tragic failures of faith of the church in history. And I said, well, yeah, that's how I read history. And his response, he looked me right in the eye and said, I don't think we can allow that to happen on our border in our time. And after some sleepless nights, I went back to him and said, yeah, you're right. I, I, cannot claim to be a person of faith or even a pastor of a faith community uh, if I tell you no. <laughs> I, of course, you're right. Uh, we have to do this. Beginning in the summer of 1981, Jim Corbett undertook the first of what would become hundreds of risky trips to the border to help Central American refugees safely across and up to Tucson. He didn't do it alone. He had the help of Los Cabreros Andantes, as he writes in Goat Walking. Few groups could have been better prepared, bonded together, and predisposed than the Cabreros Andantes to help the refugees get through. Errantry shifted from goat herding to refugee aid. I really want to stop and emphasize this point for a moment. In my own reading of history, People who cultivate intimate relationships with the more-than-human world often become leaders and resources in times of disaster, of deprivation, and of demagoguery. In this respect, I would argue that you could draw a straight line from St. Francis of Assisi to Henry David Thoreau and right on to Jim Corbett. Few people would have made the decision that Jim and John made, and fewer still would have actually been able to pull it off. Jim's years of roaming in the desert with his goats turned out to be a singular contribution. Oh, it meant everything. I mean, uh, what does some gringo from Western Pennsylvania know about smuggling refugees across the border? Uh, it was all Jim's conception and Jim's practice and then Jim's training of other volunteers in that practice that was the foundation of everything we did. 
By this time, Jim and his inner circle had already formed relationships with a Catholic priest, Father Quinones, at the sanctuary of Guadalupe Church on the other side of the border in Nogales. Father Quinones would do weekly visits to the local Mexican prison, where migrants were held awaiting deportation. And Jim would join him. New groups of migrants would arrive and depart every week, and the conditions in the jail were not good. Yeah, it was just a concrete uh, holding tank with nothing to sleep on. And normally, when we started working on it at a later point, no, no blankets or anything. They just slept on the concrete floor. It was open air, so it got very, very cold in the winter in the house. Once there, he'd do refugee support work, helping supply blankets and mattresses and sanitary products, as well as assisting the refugees in connecting with family members. He'd also use these visits as an opportunity to learn about how they traveled from their homes to the border, and how they crossed, and how they got caught. This research ended up being really crucial, because in the summer of 1981, the floodgates opened. Central American refugees began arriving in the borderlands in unprecedented numbers. And so with a group of about, uh, I don't know, 20 or so folks, in cooperation with a Catholic priest in Nogales, Sonora, who had been running a shelter for Central American refugees to protect them there in Mexico. Uh, He would refer families to us. We would cross them, bring them to Tucson. Jim and other volunteers were making daily trips to Nogales to help them across. It was just almost every day. People were just coming through so fast. They'd do this all sorts of ways. For example, Jim learned of a hole in the border fence on the east side of Nogales and when it would be watched. There were certain times when the hole was really just left unattended. So if you knew the times when they weren't going to bother, you'd just always make it. And and in 81, you know, just day after day after day, people were going through. and... And Jim would find those people and transport them safely past the Border Patrol to Tucson. Throughout summer and fall of 1981, Pat Corbett remembers him being in constant motion. Oh gosh, there for a while, he'd be just you know, three or four trips a day to Mexico. Really, I don't know how he did it. We'll probably never know entirely, but in those early days, he did it mostly just by picking folks up and driving them north in his truck. At that time, the Border Patrol wasn't so, you know, on the lookout for that kind of thing, so it wasn't as hard as it later became. As sanctuary activities became more public and the situation worsened in Central America, the border tightened up. Civilized ports of entry were fortified, forcing migrants to attempt to cross the border in extremely dangerous, sparsely inhabited stretches of desert, where untold numbers would die over the coming decades. This policy of prevention through deterrence and its deadly results are well documented today. But in the early 1980s, large groups of migrants dying in shocking numbers in the desert was still a novel phenomenon. In response to this fortification, Jim used his incredible knowledge of the Sonoran Desert's ecology and geography to help groups of migrants cross by foot. Those lucky enough to cross with Jim were in good hands. I've spent days and up to a week with them in the desert. It wasn't go walking, it was smuggling refugees. (laughs) So I learned a lot from him in those brief periods about desert survival and about what he was thinking and about what he was teaching. Jim's knowledge would carry the groups safely across this harsh terrain. Of course, it wasn't easy. 
I think the refugees, you know, they were pretty accustomed to a tough life, but even so, I think they found Jim's idea of, you know, how to, to hike across the, the desert and in the mountains pretty tough. Eventually, the iconic quality of these desert crossings would make front-page news. Journalists from major publications like the Chicago Tribune would follow Jim into the desert to get the full story. But that didn't stop him from taking refugees from the border up into the Chiricahua Mountains wearing his sandals. And one time there was a, a TV crew from L.A. out with him and they couldn't hack it. And there's Jim with his sandals and his arthritic toes just walking through the mountains. <laughs> but that was just getting folks safely across the border. Then there was the question of what to do with them. At first, Jim would bring the refugees to his and Pat's apartment in Tucson, which quickly filled up. Here's a recording of a talk that Pat gave to a group of Quakers, reflecting back on that time. A reporter in Washington, D.C. once asked me what my role was in the sanctuary movement, which kind of befuddled me, and it still does. So I thought a while, and I said, well, I guess I was the plumber. The uh, reporter looked quite stunned by this, and uh, after a while I realized that she thought I meant a Watergate type of plumber when I was speaking quite literally of the problems involved in having sometimes 20 or more people using a septic system meant for two. While Pat was dealing with the immediate problems presented by hosting too many people under one roof, Jim and the other Cabreros Andantes reached out through their networks to find temporary accommodation for these refugees. One of the people who answered that call was Gary Paul Nabhan. My first year in Tucson, after living on ranches and in national parks in southern Arizona, I ended up in a community garden group with Jim and his wife and many of their dear friends, at least half of them literally friends, uh, Quakers. And we not only shared garden space, but we helped with uh, goat milking because Jim was still doing his goat walks. But he was really the first philosopher I, I knew who had such a deep grounding in Western and Eastern traditions that he took principles from perennial traditions and adapted them to social justice here in the borderlands. And he did it in a very non-egotistical way. He didn't announce things. He'd say something like, Gary, I have some friends that I'd like you to meet that are just passing through town, and they share a lot of your same interests. Could you meet us at the Denny's uh, a few blocks away from your house? And I'd get over there, and there'd be a Guatemalan family that needed help filling out their refugee papers, and one stayed for a month with us, and finally got reunited with their extended family in California. Like many people who befriended Jim and participated in Sanctuary, the experience was life-changing for Gary. And I realized that, while at that age, in my 20s, I thought it was just a good thing to do. I, I had no sense of how much suffering they had gone through and how even coming to the United States ended up not to be a solace or a sanctuary immediately, but a struggle to feel legal 
and to feel like they had their dignity and to overcome the post-traumatic stress of not just what took them from their homeland, but all the trials and tribulations they faced in Mexico. And Jim somehow knew that from his own life and sort of guided those of us who are facing it for the first time, that it's not a cup of tea hosting refugees. They're going through deeply troubling issues that you need to accompany them with. And I thought it was giving them a room. And I realized afterwards that it was giving them my heart and my attention and my listening. We'll return to Gary later in this series. But for now, I'll just say that Gary's experience is typical of those who became drawn to sanctuary work by Jim. Helping people felt good, but the traumas that those people carried were with them all the time. Oh, the stories you would hear from them were appalling. These were people who in many cases had directly experienced unimaginable violence against their person or their close family members, and who felt that remaining in their homes was more dangerous than the perilous journey northward. Traversing Mexico was and is extremely dangerous for Central American migrants. The U.S. had put increasing pressure on Mexican authorities to prevent Central Americans from even reaching the U.S. border. And this criminalization of migration subjected migrants to organized crime, police corruption, and worse things. It was especially dangerous for female refugees. So a lot of it really had to do with uh, the whole problem connected with women in that uh, if they are young and saleable, they're indefinitely exploitable. And as refugees, they're completely vulnerable. For these female refugees, they risked not only being killed, but also being exploited and trafficked for sex if they were deported back to Central America or captured by police or criminals in Mexico. They were in an incredibly difficult position. So... While there were folks like Gary who took refugees in in those early days, most of the Central Americans still ended up living with Jim and Pat in their tiny apartment. It was just a really a very difficult thing to cope with all the folks. And at the same time, someone was arriving new almost virtually every day. And most of my energy was going into getting them through without their being caught, which meant I brought them into Tucson and then hoped someone would do something. And frequently, Pat and I were doing it at the apartment, that is, in terms of the people crowded in there. And if I was going to be responsible in some sense for trying to cope, it was easier to cope with 20 people crammed into the apartment where I lived than to try to run around town figuring out what to do with folks somewhere else. So it, it simply reached a point of extreme overload. With their apartment full and at their wit's end, It was clear for Pat and Jim that something needed to change. In hindsight, what happened next was a stroke of sheer brilliance. Jim told it like this. Oh yeah, there had been a period of several weeks where Pat had been talking about the need to find some church or someone who could take care of the refugees. And it was especially urgent because I was planning to go down to Chiapas and Guatemala. Yeah. it it had become clear that it just wouldn't be good to leave Pat alone trying to tend to the apartment jammed full of uh, refugees. Pat tells it like this. At one point I finally was saying to Jim that, you know, he should go talk to some of these church people who were also, you know, concerned about the refugees because they had these churches with lots of room, lots more room than we had, and better plumbing. 
And so poor John Fife, Jim picked on him. And he went to his congregation and they had a, a congregation discussion about it and decided that they should start housing refugees. So I was able to let them have my 21 or 22 refugees. And great sigh of relief. <laughs> and John, he tells it like this. And then both Pat and my wife got together and threatened divorce <laughs> and uh, said, come on, guys, we can't be trying to provide all the care that refugees present to us in terms of their needs in our homes. And so uh, that's when Jim came to me and said, can we bring those folks to the church? By all accounts, I think we can conclude that Pat was responsible for moving sanctuary from a tiny apartment to the churches of America, setting the stage for a national, modern-day underground railroad. That's probably an accurate rendering of history, in my judgment, yeah. (laughs) From this point on, sanctuary would be spelled with a capital S. On March 24, 1982, Southside Church publicly declared itself to be a sanctuary for the oppressed of Central America. By 1985, over 500 congregations had joined, creating a national movement with thousands of volunteers working to shelter, transport, and house refugees from war-torn Central America. Jim, the solitary Quaker, had finally found a home in the church and his principled stand had created a movement that defied the most powerful government on the face of the earth. You might have a few questions at this point. For example, how did sanctuary volunteers ensure that the migrants that they were helping were actually refugees? The answer is the church. When he wasn't helping folks cross the border, Jim traveled extensively throughout Southern Mexico and Guatemala during this period tapping into a network of churches that extended from Latin America north to the United States. The pastors of these congregations took incredible risks to help migrants on their way north. And in the process, they would vet the migrants to make sure that they weren't unknowingly sheltering people who had no legitimate claim to asylum. By the time these folks actually reached the U.S. border, the sanctuary network would be able to vouch for them as refugees, regardless of the U.S. government's intransigence on the issue. Later in this series, we'll critique this notion of deserving refugees versus undeserving economic migrants. But for Jim and the other sanctuary volunteers, it was important that they took extreme care to make sure that sanctuary volunteers weren't unknowingly doing the work of coyotes or other smuggling operations. Another question, how did these churches organize themselves? The answer is through lots of meetings and letters. The horizontal structure of the sanctuary movement meant that no one was in charge. And although John and Jim tended to act as national spokespeople, each congregation functioned voluntarily and autonomously. This sometimes led to issues, such as certain congregations wanting to politicize the refugees they helped by asking them to speak out against the right-wing governments of Latin America. Jim was strongly against this politicization of sanctuary. It, It was very firm with everyone here that that particular approach was one that was morally wrong. Yeah. You know, that it, it really uh, is wrong to 
deny people aid because they don't fit your political purposes. Mm -hmm. It's wrong to pressure people into fitting your political purposes who are in desperate situations. Yeah. In Tucson, at least, sanctuary would be offered to asylum seekers regardless of their political orientation. At the time, this elevation of human life over political expediency contrasted sharply with both the U.S. government and more ideological leftist groups and congregations. But the question that I'd like to examine for the rest of this episode is how did the sanctuary movement choose to justify its actions to the citizens and the government of the United States? Well, when we finally in March of 1982 declared Southside Church a sanctuary for Central American refugees and received a mother, father, and two kids, two little kids, uh, in publicly into the sanctuary of the church. I thought, and Jim thought at that point, that we were doing civil disobedience in the tradition of King and Gandhi and Thoreau and going back to uh, Moses's sister who hit him <laughs> along the Nile to keep Pharaoh from killing all the male children back there. Civil disobedience, as many of us are taught in grade school, is a term popularized by 19th century American author Henry David Thoreau. You know, the guy who lived in a cabin on Walden Pond and went to prison for refusing to pay his taxes. And so I talked about King and quoted Gandhi and went on and on when we did the public declaration of sanctuary here. And about a month after we had done that, I get a call in my office, and this guy says, I'm a human rights attorney from New York, and you've got to stop talking about civil disobedience. You're not doing civil disobedience. And I laughed, and I said, what do you mean? The government says they're going to indict us any day now. Uh, they keep saying that, and I'm just sitting around waiting for the documents. <laughs> and he said to me, listen, dummy, <laughs> that's a direct quote. You're not doing civil disobedience. It's the government that's doing civil disobedience. It's the government that's violating United States refugee law. So every time you talk about civil disobedience, people get it all mixed up. So stop it. And I said, oh, I think I understand. But what do we call what we're doing now? And he said, I don't know. Make it up. And so I went to Jim, told him about the phone call, and he kind of smiled and came back about three or four days later with this whole paper that he called on civil initiative. In his essays on the topic, Jim converses with Thoreau, Gandhi, and Hobbes to articulate a new paradigm for radical justice. He called it civil initiative. Civil initiative maintains and extends the rule of law. Unlike civil disobedience, which breaks it, and civil obedience, which lets the government break it. Civil initiative reframed the discussion, casting the government as the one that was violating its own laws and higher laws as well. Conventional civil disobedience uh, would simply concede to the government the destruction of the refugee laws. Mm. That what was at stake was international human rights and humanitarian law and, and the domestic refugee law. And that it was very important not to take a traditional civil disobedience approach. 
if we were going to save the laws, because if when the government violates the law that way and is attacking it, you simply uh, concede their legitimacy yeah. and say that you're breaking the law, uh, then that just does it in. For, you're not going to save the law, any of the law at that point. This framing was crucial in convincing so many people who would not otherwise engage in quote-unquote illegal behavior to take up Jim's proposition of collectively enacting U.S. immigration law at the grassroots level, even as the U.S. government itself, under the Reagan administration, violated it. I mean, it's one thing to go to Presbyterian churches or Catholic churches or Jewish synagogues and say, we'd like you to join us in doing civil disobedience with all of the negative and risk aspects that that would have entailed. It's quite another thing to go to them and say, it's the government that's violating human rights and United States law. Join us in an active public resistance to government crimes. That puts a very different incentive and perspective for risk-taking under those conditions. Yeah. It, it meant we were able to build a movement quickly. This movement, grounded in international human rights law, U.S. law as it was written, and the divine laws of the church, joined a long tradition of people, especially indigenous people and people of color, who had risked everything to defy a U.S. government which, throughout time, has steadily refused to live up to its own laws, principles, and founding documents. Oh, sure. If you, if you look back, You can make a clear case that Dr. King was not doing civil disobedience. He was doing civil initiative, as we understood it in our movement. You can go on and on and on throughout history and say, no, no, that's not civil disobedience. Today, when I think of mutual aid movements and so many people coming together to resist the wholesale destruction of human and biological communities, I think of the power of this reconceptualization of civil disobedience to civil initiative. It acknowledges a fundamental kind of work that we can only do when we act as a community. Jim would later write, Individuals can resist injustice, but only a community can do justice. Of course, The U.S. government acknowledges no higher authority than its own in practice. And it was only a matter of time before Jim, John, and a number of other sanctuary volunteers were brought to trial. The sanctuary movement had been infiltrated, and covert tape recordings were made, followed by charges. The judge was prejudiced, and wouldn't allow Jim and his co-defendants to present a defense at all, ruling that no discussion of sanctuary or refugees would be admitted. The story of the trial is fascinating, and has been thoroughly documented in other media, including the 99% Invisible series. The outcome. Several folks were convicted, including John Fife, but Jim and others were found innocent. And the charges were later overturned, or sentences reduced. Ironically, Jim Corbett, the man the government had wanted most to convict, hadn't been in Tucson when the government informant infiltrated the sanctuary network. He was spending all of his time border south to Central America putting that part of the Underground Railroad together so we could get people safely out of Central America and and to the border. And so they had no evidence (laughs) against him. So that's why he was found innocent. (laughs) In the end, what the trial served to do was to strengthen the sanctuary movement 
giving it a national stage and the righteous narrative of the church standing up to a tyrannical government. Sanctuary, in this incarnation, would continue into the late 1980s, until the number of refugees seeking asylum began to decrease. For Jim, the end of the trial also signaled to him that he could finally start to step back from sanctuary work. In some measure, I, I can, I think, now turn back to the things that I choose to do. My agenda has been set by the refugee situation. I wouldn't have simply chosen this out of the various uh, uh, social concerns mm-hmm. um, if I had been choosing. <laughs> and environmental concerns and rediscovery of the Sabbath are some of the things that uh, I, I'm very interested in pursuing now and I think have the, have the chance to attend to. I might even do a new, revised, updated version of the goat-walking manuscript. This would be the time that Jim would finally finish his first book, Goat-Walking. But he also had a new project in mind, one that spoke more to Aldo Leopold than to Henry David Thoreau. And uh, the whole development of a land ethic in which there is protective, symbiotic community at work. I think my attitudes with regard to the refugees, the reasons I took the course of action I did, were very much formed by this other, broader attitude towards Mm -hmm. the fact that uh, human beings have an enormous responsibility to bring into full reflective consciousness the community that does exist, that life is in fact among us rather than in us. And that definitely has a bearing on my understanding of what sanctuary is. And Mm. sanctuary, in its broadest sense, extends far beyond um, Central America and Pacific human refugees uh, to the need for harmonious community among all living things. Extending sanctuary to all life. That's next time in part three of Goat Walker. Goatwalker is produced by myself, Adam Huggins, and Mendel Skolsky for Future Ecologies. Ilana Fenaryov is the associate producer for the series. For photos, citations, and more information about the people and events described in this episode, including some truly incredible photos of Jim from the sanctuary years, please visit futureecologies.net. In this episode, you heard Anne Russell, Tom Oram, John Fife, Pat Corbett, Gary Paul Nabhan, Jim Corbett, and Miriam Davidson. Narration was by Philip Buller. Music was by People with Bodies, Meteoric, Hidden Sky, and Sunfish Moon Light. The Goatwalker theme is by writer Thomas White and Sunfish Moon Light. Special thanks to Teresa Madison, Susan Tolefson, John Fife, Pat Corbett, Nancy Ferguson, Tom Oram, Gary Paul Nabhan, Gita Bodner, Amanda Howard and the University of Arizona, Sadie Couture, Philip Buller, and Danny Elms. Future Ecologies is an independent production, supported by our patrons. To join them, go to patreon.com futureecologies. This series was recorded on the territory of the Tejano Optum and produced on the unceded, shared, and asserted territory of the Penelicate, Holitzum, Lalem Serateneo, and other Holcomenum-speaking peoples.